Welcome to ACR Moonshot, the Advanced Cardiac Resuscitation Podcast, where we embrace a bold change in the way that we plan for and respond to sudden cardiac arrest in the pursuit of saving more lives. And now your host, Joe Powell and Billy Croft. All right, welcome back to ACR Moonshot. Joe, where are you, man? I can't see you. Hey, Billy, how are you, sir? I am... I am in uh, beautiful Oak Hills, California. This is a little bit like a Where's Waldo because you, once again, are not at home. You are a long way from home. Where are you, sir? I'm in San Diego, California. Sunny San Diego. A little bit cold. Um, it was, it's was. it been rainy here for a couple of days, but uh, the sun finally came out. Um, we are. I'm out at the CPR, um, Citizen CPR Foundation Summit. Um, so very excited to be out here. I'm presenting with, uh, one of my cohorts, uh, Daryl McDonald, uh, he's in here also with us. He's going to be sitting in with us today. Say hi, Daryl. Hey guys. All right. Awesome. So yeah, we're out here in beautiful you California. Are, you guys, I know you don't know it, but you're a long way from home, right? You're like all the way across the country. Yeah. It was four and a half hour flight, man. But, uh, you know, my arms are really tired. <laughs> yeah. I mean, <laughs> Right. You guys, you guys flew over. Yeah. Oh yeah. 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 It's, it's been phenomenal over here. Um, just listening to, you know, all these people speak about, um, you know, improving survivability from cardiac arrest and, uh, very inspiring. And, uh, I got to meet a, a lot of great people out here. Um, a lot of very smart people, uh, a lot smarter than me. And, uh, that makes, just makes me better. Um, but, uh, I'm not afraid to talk to anybody, Joe, you know that. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. We can get some information and, uh, and move the ACR moonshot forward. Uh, we're in. Yeah. So um, with that, I mean, that's a great segue. Um, we have a, a wonderful, wonderful guest today. Uh, I met him yesterday, um, but I know about him because I've read all of his stuff. And um, I'm just really excited to to have this gentleman on, uh, Dr. Sheldon Cheskis. How are you, sir? I'm fantastic. Thank you so much for having me today, Billy. Oh, man. It's, uh, I don't know. I, it, does this feel like when you meet like Taylor Swift or something? I think, so. I, think <laughs> I think it is. <laughs> you know, a little bit of an overcall <laughs> there, man. <laughs> He's got his chest painted and everything. Uh, it's pretty awesome. But, um, you know, you've done a, a lot of great stuff in, in the field of resuscitation and uh, a lot of research. And it's amazing what you're doing. Uh, thank you so much, guys. Listen, it's great. It's amazing to me. You come to these conferences, right? And yeah, sit down next to a fire pit. And next thing I know, I'm sitting next to this guy, Billy Croft. And Billy starts telling me what he's doing. And the, a, a, the I've, I got so excited because, you know, his focus is the same thing that my research focuses on, improving survival from cardiac arrest. Um, so we obviously had a really natural, great uh, discussion. And he said, hey, why don't you come on on my podcast? And I couldn't be happier to be here. So great to share some time with you, speak about some science, and perhaps give your listeners some uh, some insights in some of the stuff we're doing uh, to always, again, save lives. Yeah, amen, amen. Um, with that, why don't you give us a little bit of background for our listeners and you know where, where you work, because you don't work here. Yeah, 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 um, yeah, I'm a long way from home too. So I'm a professor of, uh, of emergency medicine at the University of Toronto. And uh, I've been an EMS medical director now for 
uh, about 30, 33 years actually going on in uh, the region of Peel and Home, just outside uh, Toronto. I, um, I really love the world of emergency medicine, but I love the world of pre-hospital care. And um, I love the, the heroes that work in pre-hospital care. For me, my paramedics are paramount. I've developed a, an incredible relationship with them. Um, and I think it's an incredibly close relationship with them. So I think, you know, when people look at our recently published work on Dose VF, I say this every time I give my talk on that. Um, I said, for me, uh, the stars of that research were the 4,000 paramedics we trained in the Dose VF protocol. They were simply superb. And without them, we wouldn't have changed science. So I think I just have a special spot in my heart for paramedics, for what they do. Um, and they've really been the cornerstone for everything I've done in research. So I feel really close in pre-hospital care. Thank you for saying that. You know, um, we all struggle with change. You know, uh, things are rapidly changing and hopefully for the better. Um, and paramedics are often stuck going, well, why are we doing this? You know, why, you know, I'm not a doctor, I'm not this, but, uh, you know, for you to say that you, you form these relationships with these paramedics on a level where they understand and you're there working with them, that means a lot to us. It means a lot to us. Uh, and I think it should, because I think, um, I learned a lot of things over the years in resuscitation, doing studies. And, uh, what I learned about is that paramedics don't like people in the ivory towers telling what they can and what they can't do. Um, if you haven't been on a rig, if you haven't worked with a paramedic in the areas that they worked on, they're not going to respect you to be able to tell them how to practice um, paramedicine. And I think that bond that I've had with them, I think, has allowed me to uh, develop a relationship such that they trust me when I say, hey, I think we should do this trial because we can change practice with this trial. They trust that. And I think many of them um, do it so good because they don't want to disappoint me. Do you know what I mean? They, they, yeah. they, they take it is, um, to, to heart as much as I would take it to heart for them. So um, whenever we have a situation um, where a paramedic or, uh, feels that they may have done something incorrect on a call, um, we get a complaint, I always have the paramedics back. I've always been like that. And I think um, that's what you need as a medical director. If they don't respect you, they're not going to practice to the best of their ability. So, like I said, I think that bond, it took years, but it's, uh, it's gotten better with every year. When I teach, when I do a protocol, you know, I don't, bring, I don't send in my study coordinator to give the talk. They hear it from me. They hear it from the horse's mouth. And that, that buys goodwill because they said, hey... I want to hear it from the guy who's running the trial. So I make it a point to come to all CMEs to be able to provide that feedback and hear, listen to myself for the questions and listen to myself for the answers to questions they want to hear about. So, yeah, I think just, you know, you have to develop that kind of relationship. And if you do, then you're going to go a long way in research, in particular pre-hospital research. Yeah, I want to come work for you. <laughs> we, got a lot, we got a lot of jobs out there now i can tell you man we're we're hiring big time so i mean yeah. i don't know i did sent goosebumps yeah, up my that's you know that's being being on the front lines and, and hearing that from your leadership, from leadership is absolutely. um that you know you're forming that bond of trust and mutual respect and um it's it's amazing so thank yeah you. That, thank that's you really so cool
really cool. Um, so what brought you to um, like research? Because you didn't always do research. So what, what made you do that? Yeah, that's a great question. You know what? So, you know, I practiced 20 years. Um, I ran an emergency department for 20 years um, where all I did was clinical work. I didn't do any research. I had no time for researchers. I always used to think, hey, man, you can do clinical, you do research. <laughs> and, and eventually I got to the point where um, I got really pissed off. I got pissed off because I saw so many people coming to my department dying of cardiac arrest. And I said to myself, we, something is wrong here. We need to be able to do better for these people. And it spurred uh, my interest in the area of cardiac arrest. And that's really where all my research began, as seeing this um, terrible outcomes for people who sustained out-of-hospital cardiac arrest. And that sort of spurred my interest in, in moving forward in research. It was interesting because, listen, I'm not your classic researcher. You know, I don't got a master's. I don't have a PhD. Um, so I'm not your pedigree of a classic researcher. But what I do is I work hard. I read a lot. I learn a lot. I surround myself with excellent mentors who help me along the way. And um, through that sort of, I, I remember uh, Ben Barbro telling me this, you know, to succeed in this type of world, you need dogged determination. And that I did have in spades. And I think that sort of got me uh, to where I am now. So... Um, yeah, it wasn't always research, that's for sure. But now um, that's a big part of what I do. Yeah, we, we kind of talked about that the other night. You know, yeah. like, can you imagine, like, us being at this spot right now in our in our lives, you know? Because 10 years ago, you know, just being a, a firefighter paramedic, I shouldn't just say just a firefighter paramedic, but, um, I you know, I would have laughed, said, oh, you're going to go across the country and, and talk about neurologically intact survival survival from cardiac arrest i would have laughed yeah totally. but here i am and here you are yeah you know doing very important research you know we, we need more people like you well i think you know it's funny that you mentioned that billy so when i think about uh, my career in research i think about all the places i've been to that i probably wouldn't have been to without research and the people i've met the people i've collaborated with so um people who i've met at one time who I never in the world would have thought I would have done research with them 10 years later, five years later. And that's how you build relationships. And uh, it's, been, uh, it's been a fantastic ride to be able to do that. And like, just like I'm saying, like, what, think about us being here today. Just met you yesterday, sitting outside, talking about cardiac arrest, and here we're having a podcast just off the top of our head. No, no pre-specified things to talk about, but just talking about trying to make life better for people who sustain cardiac arrest. So... Yeah, it's um, it's kind of funny how life works that way. It's actually beautiful. Yeah. I think so. Yeah. I think it's beautiful. It's beautiful. What do you think, Joe? Yeah, you know, I I listen to you guys talking, and uh, you know, the trust that uh, that the doc is, has established with his folks is really important. And then the 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 trust and the you know the fact that you know you and Daryl are both both there and actively involved in this process and you're practicing, you know, day to day for the processes that we talk about and trying to learn more and, and implement that and do a better job. It's just, uh, it's, it's, it's incredible stuff. It's just, I'm just uh, happy to be part of it. Amen. Amen. So, um, let's just get in some of your research. I, what, you know, I, I know the topic du jour yeah. <laughs> is dual sequential, right? we talked about that. Um, and, and we'll get into that, but what, what other studies have you 
gone into? So right now, you know, obviously, you know, it's a year past Double Sequential's actual first publication. And the whole year has been really taken up by that. Like, yeah. I've, I've traveled around the world. I've given 100 talks on on the topic. And the amazing thing is the talks I've given have not been all EMS talks. They've been hospital talks, ED talks, ICU talks. It's one of the first times I think I can recall a topic that science in the pre-hospital care area changed in hospital care. Almost always in pre-hospital care, it's the other way around. Uh, so I think it's been uh, amazing to see the uptake uh, by so many different disciplines. So I think, you know, Double Sequential will spend this year speaking about sort of the mechanisms, understanding why Double Sequential works and why it seems to be better than uh, vector change or standard defibrillation for people in refractory VF. And I think once we publish that, uh, there'll be no questions. You know, they can talk about, well, we don't really know why it works. We're going to do research that shows you why it works. And I think that means a lot to a lot of people. Um, I, I think the other stuff we're focusing on, uh, my own research right now, um, we're running a trial known as PITSTOP, so paramedic-initiated treatment of sepsis and out-of-hospital uh, arena. And in PITSTOP, um, we've randomized now almost 1,000 patients in the trial. It's a factorial design trial where the paramedics give either one gram of cefetriaxone or no antibiotic, high-dose fluid versus standard-dose fluid uh, for patients who are presumed septic. So um, there's been some randomized, there's been some randomized trials that have looked at this. There have been two in Europe. The trouble with the ones in Europe, though, were the patients weren't sick. Can't make a difference, though, if the patients aren't sick, right? <laughs> so in our trial, uh, the patients have to have a um, presumed source of sepsis. They have to have a temp of 38 or greater, but they have to be hypotensive. Oh. So they have to have a pressure less than 100 systolic. So I think what we're going to see there is you're going to see an outcome of a paramedic treatment in the field that changes care again because we're going to give antibiotics to these patients earlier than they would have gotten in or ever gotten it before. So I think we expect we're going to see different results than what we've seen in previous studies in this area, and we're about halfway done that trial. So we're really excited about pit stop. Uh, the other trial we're just starting is epidose. So epidose is the use of epinephrine in cardiac arrest, always a big area of concern. Um, should we give none? Should we give too much? And I think the studies have not addressed, um, what if you're somewhere in the middle? Do you know what I mean? So, you know, I think um, when you look at paramedic two and you look at the use of um, epinephrine, it's placebo epinephrine, right? Um, what if placebo is not the right dose? And what if not high dose is not the right dose? Uh, so in this study, uh, parent, their patients are randomized to get a maximum of two milligrams epinephrine versus standard dose epinephrine, which is what they would get them. So hopefully what we'll see there is a signal that perhaps a small amount of epinephrine, enough to get ROSC, is beneficial compared to giving too much where you decrease uh, cerebral circulation impact neurologically intact status, which is what we've seen from other trials. Yeah. So um, that's another uh, study our paramedics are taking uh, are taking part in. And then my other work is really in relationship to drone delivery of AEDs for cardiac arrest in rural areas. Um, I would say that's probably been one of my more disappointing areas of research, and I'll tell you why. Um, we've I've worked with drone companies, and we have shown that the use of drones has worked. It's feasible. Like I've, we've got the technique, we've got the process down. Where we've run into trouble, and I've learned a lot about this now, is if you don't control your research, you're in trouble. 
and the people who control drone research are now the regulators. Mm. So in here would be the FDA, it would be the, uh, in Canada's Transport Canada, NAV Canada, and the regulators here. And so um, no matter what we do, we cannot get the regulator on side to be able to use this. There are fears of um, losing control of the drone, which are, which are next to zero, um, just has prevented us from moving forward. So I've decided, you know, after about three or four years in this area trying to do research that I'm going to move on to other things because um, I don't see it happening anytime soon. So <clears throat> I think it's a great idea. But ideas got to be feasible and be able to be implemented. I'm not convinced in North America that's going to be happening anytime soon. And then the final area that we're involved in is our community responder program. So you've met Paul Snowblin, my, yeah. my amazing gent from the region of Peel. And um, we've taken community response to another level by training volunteers who are under our EMS system and dispatching them with a app but not dispatching them to go pick up a defibrillator, go do CPR, we're sending them with a defibrillator, with a medical kit that includes epinephrine for anaphylaxis, naloxone for opioid overdoses, a stop the bleed kit for trauma. So what we wanna be able to do is be able to maximize their use by um, allowing them to be active in time sensitive medical emergencies. So. Our program, you don't have to go get the AED, you've got it already. And what we want to see is by doing it that way, can you actually decrease the number of responders you need to train so you're not at the levels that you're seeing in the Scandinavian countries, which are great at this, um, but in their program, someone's still got to go get the AED, which is what we're trying to hope to get around. So I think we're seeing really nice initial success in that, um, which is great in a North American environment. The other thing we're seeing with this, which we think is great, is we're seeing people who we train under our program using their kits when they're off duty. So they're not even being sent, right? So the other day we had someone who was at church, someone had a cardiac arrest. They went to their car. They weren't even dispatched by us. They went to their car, got the kit, and shocked the patient, got ROSC, and the patient survived. So we're seeing a lot of these unintended consequences that are benefiting patients just through our um, training of community responders to act in the time of need. So I think that gives you sort of an overview. Some of my stuff's really scientific, obviously Epidose Pit Stop, and the community responder program is just, I th we think it's just the right thing to do. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. You know, you, you're doing a lot of great work. Let's talk about the realm of cardiac arrest and, you know, the people that are doing work there. Why is it so hard to do trials with cardiac arrest. Yeah, so the reason a trial is, one, you have to do a lot of training. You have to have the buy-in from a lot of people. You have to um, get cut through what I call the red tape of research, so REB approvals, data sharing agreements, contracts, getting funding. Like, everyone sort of sees, um, Everyone sees like the end paper and says, wow, man, this guy published in the New England Journal. They don't see the blood, sweat, and tears right. for years that goes on before you even launch that off the ground. And then eventually coming up with an idea that your paramedics will buy into um, to make a change. And I think um, once you do that, have that buy and do the training, 
then you're off to the races. But you have to have all those other steps that really turn people off. Do you know what I mean? It's, mm-hmm. it, and I don't think that system of um, moving research forward has, has gotten any easier. Right. So, you know, you have to write grants to get funding to write, do your research. And and because, you know, if I don't have the grant funding, I can't uh, employ coordinators, study researchers, statisticians, all the people that you need to make it happen. So um, I I think um, most people don't realize the incredible amount of work it takes to get a research study launched. Um, And that's really where the challenges are, Billy. Yeah. <clears throat> Joe, you got any questions for, uh, for Doc? Hey, Doc. Um, yeah. <clears throat> when when uh, we talk, I think so it's a dose B bib drought, right? That, uh, that you just recently published about a year ago. Uh, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Go ahead. Yeah, I think I got you there. Yeah. Okay. Is that right? Is that the right word for it? The, yeah. The do- we usually talk about the dose B drought. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah. Okay. Uh, and so, um, and it really compared, um, normal defibrillation with uh, vector change, right? Going to an anterior, posterior vector and, uh, and dual sequential, is that the proper term, dual sequential? Yeah, yeah or? double sequential, dual sequential, both the same term. Yeah, okay. And so, so what, um, you know, kind of what were your, what were your initial findings and, and what were your struggles actually in, in getting that off the ground and, and yeah. doing that forward? You should come to my lecture later, buddy. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think what we found was that the survival on the double sequential arm was 30.4%, 21.7% in the vector change arm, and 13.3% in the standard arm. So you had a doubling of neurolo- and this was same similar numbers for neurologically intact survival. So we found by using an alternate defibrillation strategy that patients had better outcomes than standard defibrillation. So um, people always ask me about the challenges. Eh? So the biggest challenges we had was the defibrillator manufacturers themselves. And I think um, the biggest challenge was actually the letter that EMS agencies received from the Stryker Corp saying that if you did double sequential and damaged our defibrillator, the warranty was void. So, you know, in our study, we had six EMS agencies, three were Zool, three were Stryker. I had to go with my EPS guru, Paul Dorian, and we had to go to each of those EMS chiefs and say, hey, listen, we believe that if you do sequential DSED as we taught it, there is zero chance of defa- damaging a defibrillator. And thank God those EMS chiefs agreed with us. And because, because if they didn't, hey, Billy Croft wouldn't be talking to me today. Right, yeah. <laughs> Who's this Jessica's guy, man? <laughs> okay. <laughs> so that was one challenge. The second challenge is, you know, when you, write a, when you write a protocol and you love it to go perfectly, right? You know, so if the protocol was perfect, you got three shocks and then shock four would be vector or double sequential uh, if you were randomized to one of those arms, right? So mm-hmm. in about 12% of cases, that didn't happen. That got people all really antsy, right? But the people that got ANSI don't really understand paramedicine. And the reason people didn't get the uh, therapy that they were assigned to was real life. We had paramedics running cardiac arrest on a bus, in a ditch, in a a crowded washroom. Like sometimes you couldn't get shock four to be DSED or vector change just because of the environment they were in. And that accounts for those 12% of crossovers that you saw in our trial. So um, we never had a single case where a paramedic did not want to give the intervention that they were randomized to. That never happened. 
It only happened when the, in, when the environment did not allow them to provide the intervention. So I think that was, that's a challenge, but that's not a challenge, that's real life. Mm-hmm. That's paramedic real yep. life that a lot of ivory tower people don't understand, right? And then the final thing was COVID, man. Like who would have figured you got a COVID, you have COVID in the middle of your, uh, your in your study and that eventually uh, stopped the trial. But what got people have to understand is COVID stopped almost every pre-hospital trial run. And uh, we stopped for six months for a break because we had to work with our PEA. But my paramedics did this trial for 18 months during COVID, okay? And that, to me, is incredible. So they did all these interventions with full PPE on, and the, and that's why I love them because, you know, many of them would have, would have said, hey, man, we just is too much for us right now. These guys did it for 18 months with it. So I think, you know, those were the challenges. We overcame them, and uh, we're happy we published what we consider to be a really, really good trial. That's fantastic. Those are some amazing results there, Doc. Um, so I got, I got another, one more question for you, and I'll, I'll turn it over to the billionaire and let them ask some questions. But um, yeah, and it's kind of a two-part question, and I, and I don't know if you know the answer here, but as you as you look at uh, this trial, how do you how do you think, or or I don't know if you have any data to back up, how do you think that compression fraction affects uh, any of those three uh, arms of the trial? Um, and then how do you think that ventilatory strategies uh, might have an effect on that, or maybe they don't? Just, just what are your thoughts? Great comments, buddy. Great comments. So, I think in our so first, a ventilation strategy we don't think affected it because we really. In VF arrest in our area, shock comes first, right? So we had a lot of superglottic airways in. I think only 50% of patients got intubated. So uh, we in, in that VF arrest field, defibrillation is critical, right? So the ventilation strategy is probably not as important, and we can talk about ventilation uh, a little bit after. But one of the okay. things people always asked about is, how could you do vector change and double sequential and maintain CPR quality. And just so you know, there's every observational study before dose VF never even mentioned CPR quality. So who knows what the hell they were doing? Yeah, in, yeah, I, I, in, in dose VF, if you look at the data in our in our uh, publication, regardless of the arm the patient was randomized to, they got guideline compliant CPR quality vector double sequential or standard. So that's how good the paramedics were. CPR fractions of 80% or higher, regardless of the arm. Short shock pauses, guideline compliant compression depth and rate. So what that tells you is that um, there may be many interventions in medicine that make a difference. But if the preceding CPR quality is poor, these patients will not do well. Mm. And I think in dose VF, the preceding CPR quality was superb and I believe that had a large way to go to why these patients did so well. So I think that was a huge part of this particular trial. Yeah. Um, did they use like any kind of CPR feedback or, you know, I know Zold does that. Um, I don't know if Stryker does, but uh, our physio, whatever um, they use. But you know, we know that having feedback is super important. Yeah. Right? So, Billy, we're, we're big fans of CPR feedback. But I think the reason it was so good is because we had been doing randomized controlled trials as part of the Resuscitation Outcomes Consortium for years, right? We were part of it for 10 years, one of the largest, the largest enrolling site. And so our paramedics were used to providing high quality CPR. They were used to using CPR feedback. And I think that um, that experience optimizes CPR during the trial. 
So I think the use of feedback plus experience uh, gave us a, the, the quality that we had. And remember, the technique we used is really not rocket science. We've shared our training videos um, over a thousand times now. And the process is really quite simple. After the third failed shock, paramedics did 30 compressions, two ventilations, log roll the patient, place the posterior pad. 30 compressions, two ventilations, place the anterior pad. Then they had a full minute of CPR, and then they gave sequential shocks uh, with very, very, very short shock pauses. So that's why the CPR fraction was so good, because that process of log rolling and applying the pads was really no longer than it takes people to put a mechanical CPR device on. So mm-hmm. I, and, I, and again, it's one short delay, but it's been basically, like I said, it's about this little time it takes you to put a mechanical CPR device. So we really focused on the choreography. We worked with our instructors um, for a full day getting the optimal way to actually do this. And this is what we came up with. And this is what we teach. And this is how we show it in, the, uh, in our videos. And I think one of the worries of defibrillator manufacturers is we did it in the trial one way. Their worry is that people just go out there and do double sequential, but don't kind of do it like, hey, you know, Cheskis did it this way. We'll do it that way. Um, they don't want you to do it that way. I think that's a concern of defibrillator manufacturers. If you're going to do it, this is the way you should be doing it. So I think um, that's that's a reasonable concern, right? Because, you know, you know, in a randomized trial, you know, you're held... The scrutiny is going to be, you know, close. But uh, when it's off randomized trials, can you can you perform in the same manner? And, th- and those are the tricks. Yeah, I think it's uh, it, it's great that you bring up the fact that you worked really, really hard on the choreography and the quality of CPR, minimizing, you know, your pauses. Um, you're optimizing that patient for the treatment because if we have a chest compression <sighs> fraction of forty percent, I don't care what we do that patient's going to die. Yeah, but you're bang on. You know? So you could you could have the best intervention. Double sequential could be great. But if you're giving it to a patient with a CPR fraction of 40%, generally what it means it's poor quality CPR, they're going to be in a very uh, retractable VF, very difficult to break no matter what intervention you use. So by doing high-quality CPR, you maximize the chance for defibrillatory success. Yeah. And I think that's what happened. Yeah. I mean, it's, it, it makes sense. Mm. It's not rocket science. <laughs> it isn't rocket science. Some people like to tell you that, but it ain't rocket science. I can tell you that. Oh, that's, that's amazing. And, um, you know, if we're, if we're, we're talking about ventilation, let's talk about it. Sure. Let's yeah. No, we're, so we're doing a lot of work in the ventilation space. I've always been a big uh, believer that ventilation uh, is important. Maybe not, I, I think, as important in the VFRS. But remember, VF ain't the majority of our rest. 80% are probably now asystolic and PE right, arrest, right? right? So um, in the trouble with it, in our feeling, and my my uh, my colleague Ian Dren is going to speak about this this afternoon. I'll speak about dose VF. He's going to talk, talk our work in ventilation. And um, we're big believers in ventilation feedback. And um, um, we think that ventilation for so long has gone is the untapped portion of a resuscitation, right? So, you know, we have information in the past how um, hyperventilation is bad. Tom Offerheide did great work there. Uh, And really, we've had no mechanism to measure tidal volume. 
um, which is critical to success. And, and if you look at the AJ guidelines, they say that the, the optimal tidal volume is 500 to 600 mLs. Well, that ain't based on human science because there is no human science. Okay, so it's based on expert and animal studies. And that's where you get this 500, 600. So we're doing stuff now. We're working with Zool. We use the AccuVent device on our Zool Advanced X series. And um, we've just completed a before and after study where we uh, looked at 400 patients who um, provided ventilations prior to uh, the activation of the AccuVent device. So the AccuVent is this nice sensor that goes in the airway tree. And the AccuVent device allows you to see on the screen as a provider your ventilatory rate and your tidal volume. So um, what it does is it gives you a visual then now of your CPR quality, but also a visual on the screen of your ventilatory quality which is really, really super. So um, what we found is that ventilatory quality, both in tidal volume and rate, improves significantly through the use of a feedback device. Now, Zoll had done some work in the past uh, in simulated scenarios. So you bring some people in on a mannequin, check it before, check it after the AccuVent device, and they saw some really, really great results. But remember, simulated is simulated. Real world is real world. And what we have is real world data. And what it suggests is that I think the AccuVent device is great. I think there's a learning curve. I think there's a training curve. And I think there's a, a... a paramedic belief curve. And what I mean by paramedic beliefs is paramedics have ventilated people for a long period of time, right? And no one likes to hear that they can't ventilate, right? So paramedics, they look for the chest rise. They look for the feel of the bag. That's what they've used for so long. To say, hey, you know, now i got to look at the screen to tell me that I ventilate right, that's a learning curve. Do you know what I mean? And I'm going to tell you, when we use the AccuVent device, me and some of our medical directors, <laughs> we ventilated like shit <laughs> because, <laughs> because we thought we were great, but you know what? We weren't. And so you'll notice this when you take this device into the hospitals, the, the RTs, get, they look insulted. Like, how could you tell me I can't ventilate? You put them on the machine, we'll see how good you are. So I think that learning curve is going to be very important. Now, I, I must tell you, when we first started in Rock, 10 sites across North America, CPR quality, everyone was shit. Everyone was terrible because we hadn't measured it. We had no mechanism to measure it. But now that we're able to measure quality using defibrillator files, we slowly improve. We improved, and now you get really good CPR quality because we realized how important it is to measure. So now I think you're going to see the same thing with ventilatory quality. So I think what we hope to see is that with time, ventilatory quality will improve through the use of AccuVent device. So that's what we're doing now. The future, though, is another randomized trial we're doing. So we got a lot of stuff here for you guys yeah, today. Yeah, we do. So the trial is called Optivo. The trial is called Optivo, optimizing tidal volume in out-of-hospital cardiac arrest. What we're going to be doing is a cluster randomized design similar to DOSE-VF. And what we're going to do is randomize services. So six months, you're going to do tidal volume of five to 600 millimeters. For six months, you're going to do 300 to 400 milliliters. So we're going to be able to test, um, is, it low, is the 500, 600 really the volume? Or is it not the volume? Right. With real science. And how do you keep the paramedics in these arms? Because you program the AccuVent device to see 
adequate title volume at 500 to 600 or at 300. So then they'll be able to see on the screen, hey, when I'm randomized to the 300 arm, I want to keep that ventilation to the 300 arm. When I'm baptized to the 500 or 600 arm, I'm doing my ventilation or tidal volume to that. So I think what we're going to see is, for the first time, real-world science to either um, either refute or accept the notion that 500 to 600 is the right volume. We didn't do, we were going to do a three-arm trial with high volume, but I think we might have trouble getting a high volume through the REB, so we we decided to not go with a high volume arm. Uh, and Zoll um, has been kind enough to fund uh, this trial. So we're just getting that off the board. We have six sites across Canada. Um, one trick, though, is you have to use a Zool uh, Advanced X-Series to be able to use the AccuVent device so that um, some sites don't have that device, right, right. so that limits mm-hmm. it a little bit. Uh, so we're going to be starting that hopefully in March of 2024. We're going to be launching that trial. So, yeah, look forward to, you know, should be seeing our publication on before and after coming out shortly and look forward for updates on the Optivo, uh, the trial. So wow. really, really good stuff. That <laughs> you're blowing. You, guys, you guys never knew what you got in with you're, me you're this blowing today. my mind Doc. come on <laughs> well you know like i said it's it's been a lot of a lot of hard work a lot of blood sweat and tears and i think also picking trials that the paramedics actually were interested in doing mm-hmm. do you know what i mean i think you know and i'll use dosvf as an example like for our paramedics i think you know going through the years of rock they weren't really so cool about you know should we give more epi should we give more amio should we give placebo like for them that wasn't exciting for double sequential it was really exciting it was really exciting i'll tell you for a couple of reasons one we had both als and bls paramedics taking part so you want to research make sure you include everyone two i think there was a cool factor you know, wow, we're going to use two defibrillators. We're going to give some extra heat here. We're going to get something, get something really interesting here. We've never done this before. Then for paramedics, the biggest thing that they love is getting immediate feedback. Like you take care of a patient and um, you don't know what happens to that patient. That really gets paramedics going, right? What's the result of my work? With those VF, like doing double sequential, then they got Ross and, oh, shit, man, that never happened before, or that never happened so frequently. In a paramedic service, that stuff spread like wildfire. And that really bought into the sense that, hey, this intervention may make a difference. And I think there was a a sense that they were going to change practice. So our research would change practice around the world, and it did. So I think those are the types of things you want to be able to do in your research. Ask a question that's going to make a difference and also make a difference for your paramedics. So I think that's the type of thing that you kind of want to be able to do. I, you know, I have a question. I just thought about this. Um, did you think about how capnography plays into dual sequential? Yeah. So we, we, we haven't. We measured it, but okay. we, had, we had not. Um, it was not part of the variables we included um, as part of our analysis of our work. Okay. So we, we, we didn't, um, we didn't, we actually did not, me- we measured it, but we did not include in any of our analyses. Yeah, that, that would be an interesting <laughs> trial to see how that correlates to a successful defibrillation, Depression. you yeah. know, with, in accordance with, with capnography. Yeah. So, yeah, no, 100%. Um, you know, because that's what we, we believe in. The higher it goes, the, the better 
for defibrillation, for right? Sure. Optimizing that patient for the defibrillation. 100%. So, did you have something, Joe? I'm sorry, bud. No, no, I just said doctor doing nothing else, so you might as well do another trial, right? Yes, <laughs> you're not doing nothing else. Great line, Joe. <laughs> well, it, it, you know, it's been a pleasure. I, I know we just scratched the surface of, you know, we, we could probably talk hours about dual sequential and, you know, all the great things that you're doing. Um, I, I'm just, I'm so happy to have met you and formed a relationship with you. Um, you know, hopefully we can continue this relationship down the road. Um, I appreciate you coming on this podcast. Um, it, it tells me a lot about who you are and, and what you do. Um, you don't know me really, you know, but, uh, you believe in helping other people and saving people's lives. And I appreciate you trusting to come onto this podcast and hopefully someone hears this and they can push the envelope say, Hey, let's do this. Let's save more lives. So, um, I appreciate you being here at this podcast. I appreciate you being here at this conference, talking to, you know, all these people who, who want to do good and just spreading your message. So thank you so much, Dr. Cheskis, for being here. Yeah, Billy, you know what? You're right. We just met yesterday, but I'm a good reader of people and I can knew, I, I know good people <laughs> and you're really, you're really a gentleman. It's been a pleasure to come on a podcast and, you know, listen, I do a fair number of podcasts and, um, for me, um, it's all about spreading the word. And I like what you said, someone hears this, takes it back to the EMS agency and says, Hey, you know what? Um, why aren't we doing this or why should we do this? And here's some stuff that's being done in Canada. Um, you know, should we take part? Should we start changing our practice? So I think the more ears you have, the better um, chance you have of your um, your work being known and the more chance you have to change practice to improve the lives of so many people. And I think um, I think that's what my aim is. And, um, and hopefully your uh, listeners have got a little taste of that today. Yeah, and I'll, uh, you know, I'll put all your information in our show notes and, you know, how to get a hold of you. You're, you know, I, I've just asked to be friends with you on Twitter <laughs> <laughs> or X. I should say X. I'm sorry. Yeah, X, yeah. You know, yeah. whatever. But uh, I'll put all that info so people sure. can check you out and, you know, check some happy, of your happy to, stuff out. Happy to tweet it out for a great session today with you yeah. folks. So thank you yeah. so much. Joe, okay, you got anything before we leave? No, I just wanted to say thank, uh, thanks, Doc and Daryl, for your for your time. Um, you know, we kind of have a motto in, in ACR, which is better tomorrow, and, and uh, you're creating a bunch of better tomorrows. So uh, thank you so much for everything. Yeah, pleasure, guys. Just a pleasure. Thanks, guys. All right. Thank you, sir. This podcast and its postings are for general informational purposes only and do not constitute the practice of medicine, medical direction, medical oversight, or medical advice. No doctor-patient or doctor-healthcare provider relationship is formed. This podcast and advanced cardiac resuscitation are not a substitute for any local, state, or federal policies, protocols, or treatment guidelines. The views and opinions of the hosts and the guests of this podcast are their own and do not necessarily reflect the view or policy of advanced cardiac resuscitation, its officers, members, or member agencies. Reference to any specific product or entity does not constitute an endorsement or recommendation by advanced cardiac resuscitation. Thank you for listening to ACR Moonshot, the Advanced Cardiac Resuscitation Podcast.